Great morning already. I'm so excited to be coming near to the end of this series on assurance. We've been in this series on the teachings of how we can know if we're saved. How do we have assurance of salvation? How do we know for sure? How do we deal with the doubts that creep in uninvited into our minds or even the inclinations of our heart that cause us to drift away from full-hearted trust in the Savior? Um, what we've been doing in this series, if you, you've, no, you've noticed, is that we'll have, we've taken some examples of people throughout church history who you might not have expected doubted at times. Martin Luther, a man who kind of launched the reformation of the church in the 1500s, wrestled with huge doubts, darkness and despair in his life. David Brainerd, a missionary to the Indians in America in the 1700s, the same, often thought that he would be on Judgment Day without a Savior, even though he preached the Savior to the people he was serving. Charles Spurgeon, another mighty man of God, led thousands, maybe millions, to hear the Gospel. Near the end of his life, wondered if the great news that he preached was his to be enjoyed. Jerry Bridges last week, a more modern example, in his books gave evidence that he too, in his fight for sanctification and holiness to be like Christ, he often was battling Satan and felt accused and wondered if he in fact was right with God. So I've given you examples and my intention in those examples is to remind you that if you've been that person who has made the profession and you've walked with Christ and you believe the Gospel and yet you found in your heart this, this drift toward questioning and maybe confusion and uncertainty that you're, you're not alone. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the reason I want to make these repeatedly set before you is because I want to invite you to make this part of your following of Jesus is that you talk about this with someone you invite someone into this and you walk with someone else through this. Don't struggle with doubt alone. But what I want to do now is give you an example of the flip side of what I've been talking about. The sadder stories that we've kind of not addressed up to this point. We've talked about those true Christians who wrestled with an uncertainty but there's a flip side of the discussion. What about the false Christian who does not doubt at all? In other words, what about the false convert who's in church, who listens to sermons, could recite the gospel, who's involved in the church, and has no doubt in his or her mind that they are right with God, but they have not, in fact, a real relationship with the living Christ. What about them? You've heard of those people. You've known those people. Well, let me introduce you to Charles Templeton. You've all heard, I'm sure, of Billy Graham, the famous evangelist in the 1900s, last century. He was maybe the most well-known figure in evangelicalism, preached the gospel to thousands, led many to the Lord in his ministry. A lot is known about him. Far fewer people know about his partner in the earlier days, Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton, it was said that he was just like Billy Graham and he was on the same trajectory as Billy Graham. He was a young, zealous evangelist with powerful preaching. He had a promising future. Crowds gathered to listen to him preach. As a young man, he planted a church. He helped found Youth for Christ, a big ministry that brought the gospel to young people. He was involved in touring all over Europe, preaching the gospel to thousands upon thousands. In the 1950s, he had his own television program where he shared the gospel. The television show was called Look Up and Live, where he talked about various aspects of the Christian life. Toward the end of the 1950s, he began to doubt not only his own standing with God, but he began to doubt God himself. But unlike Luther, Brainerd, Spurgeon, 
and bridges. Charles Templeton's doubts got the best of him. And by 1957, he announced that he was no longer a Christian. You've heard of people like this man, haven't you? They start out excited about the Lord. They have what seems to be a clear understanding of the gospel. They even seem to have fruit. It seems to be maybe they have zeal. Maybe there's an excitement for the truth. And over time, weeds begin to grow in the garden of their heart. They don't address them. They don't handle them. They don't know what to do with them. And they begin to choke out whatever faith they claim to have. We've seen these examples in the Scriptures. Of course, you know of Saul in the Old Testament who seemed to be so promising a king and eventually drifted off into near insanity because of his jealousy of David. You, of course, know of Judas who was there with Jesus, saw Jesus teach, watched Him do miracles, listened to His lessons, heard His parables, watched everything that He did was near and close to Him at every turn who eventually defected for money. You heard of Demas, perhaps, in the writings of Paul, who was a partner in ministry when we first hear of him, a co-worker, a co-laborer in the gospel, but by the last time that Paul writes of him, he's abandoned the ministry and he's pursued the world. He's fallen in love with the present world. There have been some startling recent examples as well. And what happens when these things happen close to home, maybe it's happened to a leader in your life, a person you looked up to, someone you trusted, it, it rattles you, doesn't it? Shakes you up a little bit. And what happens if that's the person you learned from, that's the person you observed, that's the someone you maybe were even taught the gospel. You start to wonder, could it happen to me? Is, is that what I am? Am I that, 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 that plant that sprouts out really quickly with joy receiving the gospel? Like Jesus talked about in His parables, I'm just that one that receives it. There's an excitement. And then when the thorns and the thistles show up in my life, I wither up. Is that going to be me? Some of you are startled by the text in Scripture like Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, where Jesus talks about the last day and the judgment when people are standing before Him. And these people come up to Him and say, Hey, Jesus, have I not prophesied? Have I not done many mighty miracles in Your name? Have I not? Have I not? Have I not? Apparently, these people thought they were right with Jesus. They assumed their relationship with God was secure. And they come to Jesus and they face Him on Judgment Day. They're rather confident that Jesus knows them. And Jesus' response is startling. He says, depart from me. I never knew you. And they go off into judgment. And it's the biggest surprise of their life. We read texts like James chapter 2 that talks about faith without deeds is dead. And we sit there and we wonder, is that me? I mean, I know I have faith, but demons have faith. And so is my faith the kind of faith that saves? Is, is my faith enough? Is my faith the kind of faith that will get me into heaven? And so there are unsettling passages in Scripture, aren't there? And some of you read those and you just start to tremble. Can I know for sure? Is my faith real? Am I deceiving myself? Am I just a, a seed that sprouts up for a little bit? Is it going to be safe for me when I face my Maker on Judgment Day? Can you know for sure? I think the Bible intends for you to know for sure. I also think that in this fallen world with fallen minds and fallen hearts that some of us will battle this. And some of us will battle it more than others. And that's why we need a church to come together and rally around those who are battling harder than others. But I do think God's intention for us is to strive for certainty. We don't believe that Christianity is a religion in which God wants us to always wonder if we're His. I think He wants us to know. I think He wants us to have a full-hearted, confident assurance that we could come to Him like little children to their father. 
And so what I want to talk about this morning is a tool that God has given us in His Word to fight for assurance. So we've talked about some of the objective realities, right? The, the objective things God has done in history through Jesus that are the groundwork for our assurance. Now we're talking about some of the subjective things that we must do in our pursuit of assurance. And I want to give you a tool this morning. Now, some of you work a lot with tools. I don't work a lot with tools. I'm not handy. And so sometimes I have to look at the directions. And have you ever seen on some of these power tools, especially, they'll have a big warning label. And the warning label just about makes you want to throw the tool in the trash and be like, I'm never touching this thing. I looked at one recently. The warning label said this, please read and understand the tool labels and manual. Failure to follow warnings could result in, all caps, death. Or, all caps, serious injury. And yet we keep these tools around the house, don't we? Because they're useful in some way. Now the tool I'm going to give you has a warning label. Because you use this wrongly, you could beat yourself up and cause serious injury. And I fear that there are many Christians that are misusing a good tool in their fight for assurance. They're trying to fight for assurance and they're taking this tool, they see the Bible talks about it, they take it and they, they misuse it. They, they turn this thing into a bludgeon and they beat themselves up. And this is not the intention. We're going to talk about the tool of self-examination. Friends, it's a dangerous tool. You can do it too much. You can do it too wrongly. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, chapter 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So it's a valid tool. It's a warranted tool. But this is a tool that needs to be used with caution, with a warning label. To let you in on a little bit of the context of 2 Corinthians, where that passage is found, that'll help you understand a little bit of how to use the tool. 2 Corinthians, just to get the context of the book. Are the Corinthians known for being godly, humble people? If you know the history behind the Corinthian letters, you know that the church in Corinth was not exactly an ideal church. In fact, Paul at one point calls them carnal they're dealing with some gross sin in the church. He, he, he loves them as a, an apostle and overseeing the church in Corinth, but this church has a lot of issues. It's a notoriously difficult church. By the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to defend his apostleship to the Corinthian church. Apparently, there were some leaders in the Corinthian church that did not recognize Paul's authority. And so you look at the very end of 2 Corinthians, and he's basically has to be in this awkward position of defending his own authority. He says, no, here I am authority. I am an apostle. I do speak on behalf of Christ. Here's why. You need to listen to me. And at the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, he makes this statement, examine yourselves, examine yourselves, see if you're in the faith. Now, to understand the context, he's saying essentially, hey, you're doubting me if you're living worldly. You're, you're doubting the apostolic teaching that I'm giving you. You better check your heart. You better check yourself. He's not talking to these poor, sensitive souls that are trying their best to pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness. He's not saying, hey, watch yourself, examine yourself, always be introspective, make sure that you're walking, looking inward, and know if you're in the faith or not. It's not the context. The context is people who are living in some forms of carnality and questioning some form of God's authority. And so Paul needs to point at them and say, hey, examine yourself. Because that's not what Christians do. Okay? I know that I run the risk when I use this tool of self-examination of talking to some of you more tender-hearted consciences and you will hear some of these things and you might begin to shrivel up and wonder whether you're saved. I also know that probably in this room there are people who need to hear these tests and they're so certain of their salvation they're not even wondering whether it could be anything but secure. And so I understand right now that this is a work of the Spirit that must go before me. I've got to teach what the Bible says and let the Spirit either convict or comfort He's got to get into the heart of each individual because i got to broad brush this thing. i got to do the shotgun approach and let the Spirit kind of touch who He needs to touch and how He needs to touch them. I'm going to give five warnings before we dive into these tests. 
as you begin to examine yourself, you need to take some caution, and we need to have five quick warnings. You can jot this down, especially those of you who are prone to overanalysis, especially those of you who are prone to doubt. I want you to pay, pay special attention to these warnings. First of all, when you self-examine, don't take a snapshot of your life and examine it. Zoom out and examine the flow or the trajectory or the big picture. Don't get a microscope and zoom in on one particular area of your life where you're struggling. Zoom out and get the big picture. Don't examine today, this moment. Zoom out and examine the last five years, the last decade perhaps. Evaluate the flow, not a photograph, a video. So as you're examining yourself, zoom out. Secondly, don't compare. (laughs) Sometimes self-examination becomes this thing where we're looking at our fruit and we're comparing it with all the other fruit in the building. This is not the biblical way to self-examine. It's not a comparison game. You're not called to judge whether you are holy by comparing yourself with other people because you'll either feel proud because you feel holier or you'll feel like you despair because you don't feel as holy as them. Everyone is a sinner. The person you're comparing with has their issues. You might look at them and say, they don't struggle with this like I do. And that might cause you to despair. And I would say, no, they don't struggle with it like they do, but they got their other issues because everyone does. So don't compare. That's not how you self-evaluate. Third, don't test your past self. (coughs) Excuse me. Don't don't use these tests on your pre-conversion, pre-Christ self. Don't go back into the grimy details in your past and say, well, because I did that, I could never possibly be saved. That would be a wrong use of the tests. Fourth, don't do this all the time. Some of you, after every conversation, you start self-evaluating. After every church service, you go home and you're analyzing whether you're in the faith. After every convicting message, you start wondering if you're converted or not. Imagine starting a diet and checking the scale every five minutes. You go, you you eat a meal, you go back on the scale and you go, oh no, nothing's changed. You eat tomorrow, you get on it again, nothing's changed. Five minutes go by, I'm going to get on it again. Nothing's changed. Of course not. Growth is often by degrees and over time. So don't, again... Examine yourself. You'll, you'll drive yourself into the ground trying to examine yourself all the time. You'll have analysis paralysis and you will suffer. And that's not the intention of these self-examination warnings. Here's the fifth one and I want to highlight this one. Don't go at it alone. Those of you who doubt and you need to self-examine, those of you who wonder, if I, am I right with God? You need to reach out to your church family. You need to reach out to someone you know, love, and trust. I remember sitting across the table from a a young man in my old church and him asking me with tears welling up in his eyes, Eric, I need you to ask me if you think I'm a Christian. I, I need to ask you if you think that my faith is real. And it opened up a very, very good conversation because he had some major issues in his life, but we were able to point back to the gospel. Don't do it alone. This is part of the function of the church. One author, Mike McKinley, in a book on assurance says this, one function of church membership is to give assurance of your salvation. Being a church member means the church believes that your profession of faith is credible. It's part of what it means to become a church member. The church is saying, yeah, we believe your faith is credible. That's why the church has baptized you. That's why the church gives you the Lord's Supper. That's why the church has not yet disciplined you. Can't stress this enough. One of the biggest reasons I think we lack assurance is because we are not self-examiners on our own. We're not good at it by our own, on our own. We're not the world experts on ourselves. We don't always have good perspective. And yet we head into this thing all alone and we try to do it and we think we can. And God would say, no, you have a church for that. Reach out, get other people involved. Okay, we got those five warnings. That's the big warning label. 
You try to evaluate just a snapshot. You try to compare yourself with others. You, you try to look at the past and, and use that as your metric. Uh, you start trying to do this all by yourself in isolation all the time. I'm telling you, this is not what God has called you to do in self-examination. He's called you to do this in community from time to time when you need it. And so I want to turn you to 1 John, the book of 1 John. Now, 1 John is a letter meant to bolster assurance in the lives of Christians. And in this letter, he gives a series of tests. Tests that enable us to reflect and examine. And the point of these tests, listen, is not to terrify you. It is not to scare you. It is not to take a Christian trembling for assurance and make you even more concerned that you might not be saved. The point of 1 John is comfort. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. All you guys who are believing, I want you to know that you have eternal life. I don't want you to doubt. I don't want you to sit here wondering if if you're saved and if you're going to be with God forever after you die. I want you to know. It's really important to understand the context of 1 John. Again, I think that 1 John can become a rod that we use to beat ourselves up with. And 1 John is not intended to be a rod that we beat ourselves up with. It's a cushion that we can rest our heads on. It's something for doubters that we can go and rest easy for our souls. John's intending to do. In fact, if we understand the context, we know he's writing to a church that needed a particular way of care here, a particular form of pastoral care. It seems that there were false teachers in the church that John's writing to. It seems that they were denying, according to chapter 5, verse 1, they were denying that Jesus was the Christ. They were denying, chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus had come in the flesh they, they were people who had been in the church, apparently, but then had abandoned the church family. In chapter 2, verse 19, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So there's these people denying some core tenets of, of Christianity, core doctrines about the person and work of Jesus Christ. They had at one point then abandoned the church. It seems also like they were teaching some wacko stuff about body and soul separation, some dichotomy, and they believed that they could be perfect in their spirit, sinless in perfection in their spirit, and yet in their bodies they could go indulge in whatever sins they wanted to. They could pursue the world. And these false teachers had just absolutely taken the church and shook it up and then they left. And again, let me ask you, what happens when leaders who you trusted, who you knew, do something like that and leave and adopt a whole and entirely different way of thinking? What happens? It causes people to doubt, doesn't it? If that was your teacher, you start to go, well, is he right? Should I follow him? Did he teach me what was true? Am I secure? Could you imagine the church that First John's writing to? This poor church, all these people just abandoned. They were teaching something totally different. And this new, early New Testament church is just wondering, are we okay? Like, are we believing the right gospel here? All these other people left. And so First John is written. And the pastoral, fatherly apostle John, gentle and tender, pens this little letter to comfort them. In fact, you can see all the ways he's trying to comfort them by the way he talks about them. Chapter 2, verse 1, he calls them little children. And you'll find that through the letter, he often is referring to them in family language. Little children, little children, little children, he says again and again. Don't take these questions, these tests. We're going to find three tests in 1 John. Don't take them as questions of an accuser. Don't take the questions as the question of someone pointing the finger and going, are you really saved? Don't do that. Take this as a father who says, little children, look, look, this is how you know. Look at this in your life. You can see these things. It's gentle. It's tender. The three questions we're going to encounter in 1 John are these. Let me encourage you to not only do this for yourself, But I guarantee that if you're in the church long enough and you're invested in enough lives here, 
this tool will not only become the toolbox you use, or the tool in the toolbox you use for yourself, but it'll be something you use for others. I tell you, in my years of ministry, I've had to deal with more issues of assurance than maybe anything else. It is always something you'll be working with. And if you really get to know people, you'll realize that we are all trembling souls trying to figure out our way through life. And often even Christians are wondering if what they're doing is right and you've got to know how to comfort them. You've got to know how to calm a worried heart. And so these questions will help the trembling soul rest in Christ. And so use these not only for yourself, but for others as you seek to help others follow Jesus. Three questions. Do you love other believers? That's question number one. Question number two. Where's your allegiance? Question number three, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you love other believers? Where's your allegiance? And what do you believe about Jesus? Now, something might happen also as we go through these tests, and I actually pray this does. This might be very upsetting for someone in this room. This might be a sermon that you go, wait a second, this is too much. In which case, the Word of God might be doing something other than comforting you, it might be convicting you, because you'll be taking the test and realizing that you fail. But that's good news, because it's only when you realize that you failed the test and you're humbled by that that you cling to Christ in true repentance. And so maybe there are some people who are falsely converted in here. They think they're saved and they're not. And for you, I'm praying that these tests expose that and draw you to a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's look at the questions in more detail. Do you love other believers? 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, talking about God, while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But, verse 7, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See that? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You might have expected it to say that if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with God. But it actually does not say that. It says when we walk in the light like God is in the light, we have fellowship with who? One another. In other words, there's a a vertical relationship with God as we're walking in purity and holiness in the light that results in this fellowship, this sharing of life, this sharing of love with one another. You walk with God, you walk with other Christians. Package deal. You follow God, you unite to other Christians. Package deal. God is a magnet there in the center. As we are drawn to God, we look around and see connected to Him are a whole bunch of other Christians, and we go, I'm with them. Do you love other believers? And the word fellowship doesn't have the idea of I show up, I shake a hand, I enjoy a coffee and a donut. Um, Although sometimes we call that fellowship. Like we're sitting and we're eating a meal because there's food, it's now fellowship. Fellowship isn't just that. Obviously the biblical idea of fellowship is this depth of sharing life together. Opening your life, walking with each other through life. That's fellowship as we now share in the unity of the Holy Spirit This is the nature of someone who's born again. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. He goes into even more detail. (coughs) Excuse me. Chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. You say you walk with God, you hate your brother, you're in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. He's saying that if there's a a hatred, and I don't want you again to think that hatred means this loathe. I just absolutely can't stand any Christians. To hate in biblical terminology means to devalue, to be ignorant of. We don't care about them. We are going to set them aside. We don't feel any commitment to them. We don't feel any obligation toward them. We're not going to walk through life with them. Our 
disassociated from them. That's hatred. It means to value them less than you value the other things you're pursuing in life. So he's saying, if you say you're with God, you're walking in the light, and then you have no commitment, no love, no desire to be there to bear burdens of your brothers and sisters, you're actually in darkness. Look at chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's talking about Christ. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to do that. That is normal Christianity, laying down your life, cruciform, cross-shaped love. But if anyone has the world's goods, look at this. You might say, wow, John, that is intense. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can God's love abide in him? You, you go to church, you see a brother or a sister in need. You have what is required to meet that need. And there you see your heart begin to shut down. You don't want to meet that need. You don't want to help them out. John is raising the question of that person's salvation. You are not willing to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, though you could. How could you be saved if that's true? How could the love of God abide in you is what he says. He's not talking about you loving a distant relative. He's not talking about you loving every Christian in the world. He's not talking about you having a warm, fuzzy feeling. He puts actual flesh and blood on this. He says, if you go to church, you walk into a building, there's a bunch of Christians and you're committed to them, or at least you say you're committed to them, and there's needs all around you, and you go, nope, not me. I have no obligation, no desire, not going to serve, not going to meet their needs. I don't sense any weight of responsibility for these people that, in the Bible's terminology, is hating your brother. And that is the indication uh, you are in darkness, not light. What's love? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's love. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to invest in you. I mean, this is the first John love test. It's do you love other believers? It's not calling for perfect love, but genuine love, real love. It's there. There's, there's something in you, a, a desire, a sense of commitment. I need these people, and these people need me, and I will be there for them. I will lay down my life for them. I'm committed to them, and that will happen in degrees, and it won't be perfect as you begin to follow Jesus, but the seed of that desire exists in you, and you say, I want that. I want to grow in that. I want to be that. And friends, by the way, this is why church membership is a no-brainer for Christians. Isn't it odd, wouldn't it be odd for someone to say, according to what John's teaching here, I want to be a part of this church, but don't count on me to commit to you. I want to be here, but don't count on me to be there for you when you need me. I want to be here, but I'm not all in to be there to help. I'm going to remain uncommitted. I think that's the opposite of the kind of love that John is describing. He's describing committed love, self-sacrificing love. And so when we talk about making commitments to real people in real time and real places, we're talking about uh, what, the, what we call church membership. We're going to agree to make these commitments together. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're not going to be in a relationship with one another where we can kind of remain noncommittal, slink in, slink out, don't hold me accountable, don't get to know me. Let's all just remain on the superficial surface level. No. You don't treat relationships that way with people you love, do you? I hope that's not what your marriage is like, right? What kind of marriage would that be? Yeah, I love you. I'm going to make all kinds of commitments. Just don't count me on me to be there for you. It wouldn't make any sense. That's not love. It would be selfishness. I've heard of people that don't want to make any commitment to a church family. I've known these people. They drop in here. They come in there only at their own convenience. They don't want to make any commitments to anyone. It's too much. Listen, I think those people fail this test. To be very frank, I think 1 John is describing a kind of love and commitment that is inconvenient, isn't it? Why? Because what is love? He laid down His life for us. That's love. How could you say you love anyone and you're not even willing to be there to show up? to be a part of things, to help a brother in need. Listen, there are brothers and sisters in all kinds of needs if you have eyes to see. 
That's love. And this love is from God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Beloved, this is, let us love one another, he says. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. If you love, you, you're born of God. And you know God. Now, that's the positive side of this test. Now, if you're here, and you're like, I, I love these people. They're, they're, they're messy. They're weird. And they got their quirks. But I want to be there. And I want to show up. And I want to be invested. And I want to serve and in the little ways God allows me to sacrifice, I want to sacrifice. If that's you, you're passing the test. And praise the Lord for that. That God has given you something you could never do for yourself. Love is from God. It's not from within. Love has a source, and it's not you. And if you really do love people, you can say, God did that in me. That was God's work in me. And if you're showing up and you're wondering, oh, I don't know if I'm really saved, I don't know. See, what we tend to do, guys, this is the devil's trick. We take these tests and we add one word and we mess it all up. The test is, do you love other believers? What do we do? We add one word. We add the word enough. Do I love them enough? Suddenly, we've made our own standard for what God is saying is a mark of true love. And suddenly, we're going, do I love them enough? And now we're going like this. If I don't love them enough, I'm failing the test. The question isn't, do you love them enough? Because we don't have the right understanding of what enough would be. And so we think we never meet that standard. And of course, we'll never love them enough. We're fallen. We can't. The question is not whether you love them enough. Is, is there real love, as John describes? Lay down your life for them love. Committed love. God wrought love in your heart for other Christians. And if there is, and it's a mustard seed of real genuine love, and you're saying in humility, I want to grow in that love. And maybe you're looking around this room thinking, who could help me grow in that love? Then I think you pass this test and praise the Lord that He's working in you. And that would be a good sign that you don't need to doubt your own salvation. Here's our second question. Where's your allegiance? John's way of asking this question is to bring up the Christian's relationship to the world and to sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. He's going to kind of ask you and test you on this level. He's going to ask you, do you love the world? And do you love your sin? Chapter 2, verse 15. Look at this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a test. He's not talking about loving things in the world like a good hike in the wilderness or a good hike up the, the mountain or, or the joys of parenthood or good relationships or a good steak dinner. He's not talking about things like that. We can enjoy all those things to the glory of God, and I hope you do. He's talking about people who love the system of the world, the people who are all in with the world's values. Go in that direction. They love what the world loves. They're pursuing those things. He's saying, do not love those things, the things of the world. He says, if you love the, the world system that is devised and run by Satan, the opposer of the living God, if you love those things, John says the love of the Father is not in you. For all that is in the world, he goes on, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. This is a question of allegiance. This is a question of whose banner do you follow? This is a question that gets to the really heart of whose side are you on? This is a question that gets right down to the nitty-gritty of your heart, gets down to the nitty-gritty of your affections and what you love and what you value and what you care about and what you're pursuing. Really, ask yourself this. What do you love, really? No, really. What do you love? You know the Bible answer. But what do you love according to your bank statement? What do you love according to your calendar? What do you love about the things you're pursuing? What do you love about the real things that you're actually investing your life to pursuing? What do you love? Where's your allegiance? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it comfort? Is it fame? Is it respect? Is it material accumulation? You just want to get and get and get? Do you want to be popular? Do you want to have authority? Are those the things you're pursuing? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life? Where are your affections? Where's your allegiance? 
He not only talks about your relationship to the things of the world, but look at chapter 3, verse 10. He talks about your relationship to sin. First John can trip a lot of people up in this section because he speaks in such stark contrasts. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. Now, you've got to understand that that doesn't mean that once you get saved, you never sin again. That's not the intent of this text. If that's what John meant, he was contradicting himself because he's already said that if we say we have no sin, we're lying. So he obviously knows that we are sinners who continue to sin even after we're redeemed. So he's not talking about we reach a point of sinless perfection here. Listen to the words. Notice if a word keeps coming up. He goes, no one keeps on sinning, has either seen him or known him. Little children, verse 7, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices, righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a what? practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning you get these words that keep coming up keep on practice 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 the idea is this that your allegiance is proven about what you're continually and repeatedly pursuing and practicing what you keep on doing where your allegiance is is what you're chasing after in the practice of your life the idea of practicing sin is continual repeated unchanged patterns of sin about which you do not feel remorse and you do not feel any desire to change. I want you to look back at verse 4 and look at that idea of lawlessness. You see that word lawlessness there? What does that mean? Literally, it means living as if there's no law. To live in this way means you live as if there is no God. You live as if He has no authority over you. You live as if you're the one in charge and you pursue the things you want to pursue. That's what it means to practice sin. It's like, God, I defy you. I might know you exist, but I don't live as if you've given us any law. I don't live as if you've given us any commands. Lawlessness is an unrepentant, unconcerned pursuit of self instead of God. Do you, without remorse, continually pursue that which does not honor God? That's what he's talking about. When you were born again, the Holy Spirit came to indwell in you. He gave you a different relationship to the world and to sin. If you find in yourself that you can ingest absurd amounts of sin without getting sick to your stomach, well, that might be an indication that your allegiance is not with God. Because when the Holy Spirit's within you, He has developed a mechanism that when you ingest sin, you feel it. There's a sense of guilt. There's a sense of remorse. There's a sense of what the Bible calls godly sorrow that causes you to vomit in repentance and cry out to God and say, I need you. But those who have no Holy Spirit, those who are not regenerate and redeemed, they can take in all the sin they want. It doesn't make them feel sick at all. They don't feel the misery of their guilt. They practice sin. They keep on sinning. So where's your allegiance? If you find in yourself that you sin and you feel it, there is a pain. There are times when you know you have sinned and the agony of that sin runs deep. And you're not only sad because you got caught, but you're sad and you grieve because of the way your sin has offended the God whom you love, the Savior who redeemed you. When you feel that sort of guilt, that is called godly sorrow. And that is a good thing to feel because it then brings you to a low place where you look up to Christ. Some of you in that low place have begun to doubt if you're saved at all. You feel so guilty, you wonder... Am I even saved? When perhaps the presence of that guilt might be an indication that the Spirit is humbling you, teaching you, perfecting you, completing you into the likeness of Christ. So where's your allegiance? 
be encouraged when you look in your heart and you say, man, I do desire holy things, pure things. Be encouraged by that. Again, give credit to God. He has done a work in you and He's weaning you off the world and He is increasing your affections for Christ. Lastly, our third question. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you really believe about Jesus? A lot of people believe Jesus, right? Just about everyone believes in some sort of Jesus. Everyone likes Jesus. So many people, though, they got the wrong Jesus. Most popular Jesus out there is that Jesus who says, don't judge, and that's about all he's ever said. That's a popular Jesus. Red letter Jesus, you just pick a few of the things he said in the New Testament, you like, like those ones, you can keep those. Everything else that was controversial, throw that away. Well, the people that John's writing to were faced with these false teachers who had brought up some false teachings about Jesus. And so he had to correct them. And this becomes one of the tests we find in 1 John. Do you have right doctrine about who Jesus really is? Let me show you some of these. You can look at chapter 2, verse 22. The question is, do you believe Jesus is the Christ? In verse 22 of chapter 2, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Jesus is the Christ. What does that mean? He's the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel. He is divine. He's fully God. He's fully man. He came as an Israelite, as a Jew, to redeem His people. He did what no one else could do in paying for sins on the cross, rose from the dead, is returning to set up a kingdom. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Here's a second thing he brings up. Do you believe that he actually came in the flesh? A lot of the false teachers were these kind of weird teachers that thought that Jesus had come in a spirit only. He hadn't actually become man. He did everything as kind of a ghost and went to the cross, didn't actually die. It's kind of the spirit being. And so John has to correct them. No, look at chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We believe that Jesus Christ not only was divine, but He was fully human. He was, yes, totally divine. That refers to His messianic nature, but He was also man. He had two natures, fully God, fully man. Do you believe that He came in the flesh? Do you believe that he was actual a man in history? And these events that we describe actually happened in time, in space, in a real location. Do you believe that? That's what you got to believe. He came in the flesh. That he's the sole mediator between God and man because he is fully God and fully man. Here's another thing you got to believe about Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So you not only believe He's the Christ, you not only believe He came in the flesh, you also believe that He's the Savior of the world. That He came to the, be the Redeemer of all peoples, that anyone who could come to them, come to Him would be saved. Do you believe He's a Savior? Do you personally believe that He is your Savior have you personally trusted Him because you believe He is the Savior? Look at 2 verse 27. This is an interesting dynamic of doctrine that He wants to get across. Verse 27 of chapter 2. He says, But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. He's talking about the anointing the Spirit gives that Christ enabled us to have. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. That's a strange statement. But as His anointing teaches you everything, about everything that is true and is no lie, just that it's been taught, abide in Him. What in the world does that mean? You don't need anyone to teach you, John? Now what does that mean? Obviously, John's writing a letter. He's teaching them through his letter. So he's not saying they don't need any teaching. But what the false teachers were probably supposing was that there was some additional things that needed to be learned, the secret, mysterious knowledge that only the upper tier of Christians could have. And unless you had that, unless you had the secret experience with God, then you really weren't truly right with God. And so John has to come along and say, no, no, no. Jesus is enough. 
No, you believe in Christ, you have enough. You have him as a savior, you have enough. You don't have to be searching for all these other teachers that can give you these other things, these insights, this kind of Gnosticism that you got to have this certain experience, nothing like that. In other words, this test of doctrine is, do you believe that Jesus is enough? Do you believe that's it? You have Christ, you have it all. Do you believe you have the fullness of redemption by having Christ? That all that you need and all that Christ is, is yours by faith. These are the tests of doctrine. Do you believe he's the Christ? You say yes. You believe that he came in the flesh? You say yes. You believe that he's the savior of the world and that he can save you? Yes. You believe he's enough for you. You don't need to go looking elsewhere. He's the only thing. You're not going to try Christianity plus all these other religions. No. Jesus is it. He's all I need. He's all I need. He's all I need for redemption. He's all I need for life and godliness. He's all I need. He's my Lord and Savior and friend and master. He's with me. I'm banking everything on Jesus Christ being who he says he is. Yes, you believe that? You're Christian. In other words, what he's putting together in the book of 1 John, if you believe this stuff about Jesus and you have renounced the world and you've claimed allegiance to God and you are demonstrating that in the daily ways you love your church family, other Christians who are near to you, listen, God wants to comfort you. (laughs) He wants you to feel certain. He wants you to have a foundation that now, being certain of His never-ending, always-with-you love, you can now go out into the world and take risks for Him. Be proactive in pursuing even things that might be dangerous for God because you're secure. You're secure. And that security is the foundation for now a life of service. We don't preach about assurance just so that we can feel better about ourselves. We preach assurance so that in this depth of love that God has showered on us, in our resting in Him and in our certainty of His salvation, we now serve Him all out. He's caring for us perfectly so we can risk our reputations. We can risk our health. We can take risks in life in service of King Jesus because why? We're secure. He's taking care of us. So we move forward in obedience. So you doubting, trembling souls, you who love believers, love Jesus and you believe the right stuff about Him, you've declared your allegiance to Him, you rest You trembling souls who wonder, questioning always, here's your answer. You analyzing souls that are paralyzed, you have Christ, you have everything. You're safe. You're safe. Now, if you feel like you've not measured up to the test, you are maybe... (laughs) adding that enough word in there. Do I believe enough about Jesus or do I believe him enough? Do I love them enough? Is my allegiance enough? Here would be the wrong response. Imagine driving a car. I'll give you an illustration to show you what a a wrong response would be. Imagine you're driving a car. You want to know how fast you're going. You realize you're not going anywhere. You look at your speedometer you're not going at all. You're in a parking lot. And you go, oh no, my speedometer says I'm not going anywhere. I gotta fix that speedometer. I'm gonna look at my speedometer and I'm gonna maybe get my marker out. I'm gonna make it say that I'm actually going much faster than this, 50 miles an hour. All right, now I'm moving. You haven't fixed anything. This is what Christians do. Oh no, I'm failing the test. Or even sometimes non-Christians as they're trying to figure out where they're at. Oh no, I'm failing the test. I'm not going like I should. I see all the problems. I'm looking at the speedometer. It's indicating the fruit or whatever you want to say. I'm looking at Scripture. It's saying that I am not going the way I should go. 
I'm looking at the speed of my life. I'm not going the way I should go. I'm looking at the indicator. The indicator say I'm not going. I'm going to try to fix the indicator. I'm going to focus on me just trying to do more. I'm going to try to do more. I'm going to fill the gap. I'm going to add more fruit to my life. I'm going to add more speed to my car. I'm going to add. I'm going to look at that speedometer. I'm going to fix it. The famous analogy of the fruit stapling, my fruit tree's not producing any fruit. I'm going to go buy some apples from the store, I'm going to get a stapler, and we're going to make that tree bear fruit. And we try in our own strength to try to do the things we feel we should do. And that's not the way to do it. If you look at the speedometer of your life and you're going, all the indications are telling me I'm not going anywhere, you don't fix it by staring at the speedometer. You've got to press the gospel you got to press into the gas pedal of the gospel. If you want to move forward and bear fruit, if you want to actually grow in assurance, you don't focus on just trying to do more. You go to focus on what Christ has already done and the promises He has made. You lean into the gospel. You go back to the objective things that God has already finished. He has already done things for you to secure salvation to anyone who believes. So you don't stare at the speedometer. You start pressing into the gospel. You start pushing on the gospel gas pedal. That moves you forward. You don't keep self-examining to try to fix the problem. You examine Christ. You think about what His Word says. You go back to the promises. You go back to His finished work. You go back to His resurrection and you say, I'm banking it all on Him. Be very practical. You find yourself in a position of doubt. Let me encourage you to do something like this. Go back to the very basics of what you know is true and start asking yourself some questions. Do I believe God? Do I believe there is a God? Yes, I do. How could all this stuff be here if there's no God? Do I believe that Jesus of Nazareth really existed? I do. I do. All kinds of reasons that I believe that. Do I believe that Jesus is really God incarnate? Yeah. Man, look at all the things He did. There's no other explanations. Do I believe he died on the cross? Yes, of course. Do I believe that when he died, he was dying in the place of sinners? Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. It's very clear that that's all that the apostles taught in the New Testament. He was dying in the place for sinners. Do I believe that he truly bodily rose from the dead? Yes, against all odds, I do. I really do believe that. Do I believe that I'm a sinner who needs to be saved? Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't need anyone to convince me of that one. And do I believe that when Jesus said that everyone who trusts in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life? Oh, yes, I believe it. I'm casting everything on that promise. I'm throwing everything in that. I'm going for that fully, that Jesus said that He will save me if I come to Him. I believe that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And through this form of process, this, this way of asking yourself these questions, you focus not on yourself, not on your fruit, not on your speedometer. You start reaching into the gospel. And you say, I believe the gospel's true. And you believe that everyone who is trusting in the gospel will be saved. And that includes you. There's a story, we'll end with this, about a theologian in the 1960s who had written books upon books, tomes. He had taught classes. He became known as one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Traveled the world, taught the highest level of scholarship. He was not a theologian that we necessarily would adopt all his conclusions. But he was a man that was never accused of being trite or shallow in his thoughts about God. And one time after he was lecturing in the University of Chicago, a member of the audience asked him a question and asked him, Sir, what's the greatest thought that has ever crossed your mind? The theologian paused, stroked his chin as he thought, considered what his answer might be, and he raised his eyes and said to the audience, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Is there any truth greater than that, guys? The living God loves us. 
and has sent His Son Jesus to pay for our sins because we could never do it ourselves so that we, by faith alone, when we take our empty hand, bringing nothing to Him, just banking on Him, just clinging to Him, we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. We find assurance in the goodness of Jesus, not in the strength of our efforts. And if there's anything we're coming back to again and again and again in this series, it's that. Look and look and look to Christ. Never tire of the gospel. And when the gospel is repeated again and again in your own heart as you preach it to yourself and to others, we will grow in our confidence that He is not only able, but willing to save sinners like us and that will launch us out in obedient mission in the world God has placed us in. Let's pray. So again, Lord, I pray that these tests would hit each heart in the way it needs to be hit. And so those who need to be comforted by them, and they can look in and they can see, I do love Christians in my church. I do show my allegiance to you and the way I live and the way I love. I do believe who you are, Christ, of trusting you. But there would be a joy that even rises up now, a certainty. And for those who don't pass the test, Lord, I pray that even now they would not begin efforts of self-reliance to bolster their own assurance. They would despair of themselves and cling to their only hope, Jesus Christ. And that we together as redeemed saints brought into the family of God would be able to now give you glory for all that you have done and are doing. In Jesus' name, amen.